everybody, it's Kendall from Recording Lounge. It's April 24th, 2012, and today we're talking about cleaning up your mix. Got a dirty mix or got a mix that doesn't sound as clear as you'd like it? Well, we're going to talk about that today. Very simple things you can do to get your mix clean and that you probably will want to do at the very beginning of your mix that will make do wonders for your mix. So we're going to talk about that. And uh, very sorry I haven't had a show in a while. been pretty busy. Uh, moving to a new house that's uh that's been a big <laughs> that's been a big deal um but anyway i'm always glad to hear your questions again a quick reminder you guys can check out the facebook at facebook.com slash recording lounge and the email address has not changed that's recording lounge podcast at gmail.com which is where you can also inquire about freelance mixing and mastering um, and you can check out recordinglounge.blogspot.com for little updates that i might post on there about, you know, things that come to mind or things about recording or whatnot. So let's get started. Okay, so today we're talking about cleaning up your mix. Now, what am I talking about here? Well, there are a couple of things that come to mind when I think of a dirty mix or a mix that's not clear or a mix that, you know, is uh, in the in the early infant stages. And these are things that need to be addressed before you really start doing things. And what's funny is that if you follow some of these uh, methods that I'm about to talk about, then you may find that you're doing a lot less mixing than you realized before. So the first thing we're going to do is talk about the three main items that to me cause a mix to be cluttered. So the first thing on the list, and this is to me the biggest reason why so many mixes that I hear from home recording studios and project studios of all kinds uh, they just don't they just don't measure up and that is low end low end there's too much low end now why is that I think there are two main reasons one is that uh, low end is sort of a refined part of hearing that we really have to teach ourselves to not like it so much I know that sounds really weird but um, we like low end. Low end makes things sound big and full. But the problem is that not everything can sound full, and not everything can sound big. And in the context of a mix, when you know the instruments all sound huge, then it just turns to mud, and it sounds terrible. And you know, um, in general, th- those are just terrible, terrible sounds. When when the mix is just muddy and it's roaring around and it's triggering compressors in the wrong way, we're gonna get into that. Um, and low end, another reason I feel like is because in project studio environments, most people are mixing on near field monitors that are four, five, six inch speakers, um, that just can't produce the low end. There are tracks that I've recorded that I have recorded like an acoustic guitar, for example. And, you know, I'll pull up a spectrum analyzer that, uh, shows the frequencies and the, the volume across the frequency spectrum. And there's information down at 30 hertz and I'm like what is going on down there I can't even I obviously can't hear much down there Um, they say that humans can hear 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz or 20 kilohertz but I argue almost we can't hear below 30 because it sounds like air Um, you know and you you almost it's all something you feel and and so you know I'm looking at this acoustic guitar track and I'm saying why the heck is, is there information down there it's because of the fact that microphones and interfaces today all go 20 to 20 and it's almost like it's not a good piece of gear if it doesn't go 20 to 20k Um, but we're going to talk about that 
So when people are listening on these tinier speakers, they can't produce that information. And people don't usually just pull up a spectrum analyzer on every single track to see how much low end there is. And, uh, you know, so it's almost impossible for people listening on those speakers to really grasp the low end, the raw low end of something. That's why it's sometimes useful to have one set of very large speakers, um, what might be called far fields, what might be called, you know, all, all kinds of different names that are eight or more inches in diameter on the speakers. And uh, it's sometimes useful to have, you know, a sub that is designed to fit with your pair of speakers. Like if you have Yamaha speakers, then get a Yamaha sub and be able to tune those together uh, to work really well. And then you can physically look at the sub and see it excursing when the low frequencies pop out at you. And you'll be amazed at how many things have these extremely sub-low frequencies below 50 hertz that you just you cannot hear. However, those things will trigger compressors, and compressors think that there is important information down there. So compressors will hear that incoming audio for what it is. It won't, it's not frequency dependent. So, you know, it comes in, well, some compressors, many compressors are, but th that's different. Uh, we're gonna, we'll talk about that later. Um, basically, a compressor in general, especially a plug-in, will look at pretty much the incoming audio for what it is and not gauge what you're actually trying to compress. A good example is the acoustic guitar. In general, you're wanting to make the strums seem more even or seem punchier or seem something. Well, what you're really trying to compress is the strum, which is the is higher frequencies, you know, mid-range mid, mid -range and, high, and higher frequencies that come from the pick and the strings. But what the compressor sees is sheer volume, and since low frequencies have more power than high frequencies, it's actually trying to compress whenever it hears the low frequencies, which there are a slew of reasons why that doesn't work nearly as well. So again, what's the best way to go about mixing the low end? Well, on the preamp EQ chain, I always advise people, uh, on the show we talked about that, um, I always advise people to put your most important EQ plugin very first in the chain, meaning the one that really fixes any problems in the sound. Now, initially, you might not think there are problems in the sound, but you have to really train your brain to understand where there's a problem. Um, so, like I said, you might not even hear the super low frequencies on an acoustic guitar. So you listen to an acoustic guitar track in solo, and you say, oh yeah, that sounds fine. Well, unless you have a really high-fidelity monitoring system that you can really trust... Um, which so few of us do. I don't have super large speakers, like 10-inch speakers. I don't have those, and I wish I did, but they're very expensive. Um, and so you don't really hear that stuff. And so you might listen to a kick drum, or you might listen to a snare drum, or you might listen to a tom or, or a, an acoustic guitar, and you say, oh yeah, that sounds fine, because you're listening in solo. However, when you put it in a whole mix, it doesn't sound to have, it doesn't seem to have that sound, that right space. It's too large, so I don't advise necessarily doing any EQ just by right of course, like, you know, you always do this to the kick drum, you always do this to the bass, you always do this. I don't advise that. I, I mean, you have to use your ears. However, in modern mixes, when there's like a full band, for example, you will pretty much have to put a high-pass filter on almost everything. Now, a high-pass filter is just another word for a low-cut filter, and it's not the same thing as a low-shelf. And a high-pass filter, what it basically does, and I know you guys, many of you probably know this, what it basically does is not allow frequencies below the high-pass filter point 
to come through. I mean, it's very strong, and depending on the, the strength of the high-pass filter, um, it can really, really chop off those frequencies pretty strongly. So many instruments, almost every instrument that I can think of, including bass, including kick drum, will have a high-pass filter on. And again, part of this is because a lot of the gear that we're using now in this digital age, if you will, has full frequency spectrum from 20, I mean, the mics, the interfaces, the preamps, all of them, they'll go 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz, 20,000 hertz. And a lot of the old gear didn't at all. It had a more tamed frequency response, and like ta a lot of tape machines, the lowest frequency they could even produce or record was 50 hertz, sometimes 30. Um, and so you couldn't even get information that low. It wouldn't record it. And so what that did is it naturally had sort of a tightening effect because there wasn't all this low frequency stuff rumbling around um, that was cluttering up the bottom end of the mix. So a high pass filter is something that I seriously recommend as the first plug-in in the chain. Um, on almost every mix that I do, I put some sort of EQ as the first plug-in in the chain. Even if I don't use it, I'll, I'll just kind of put it in there in case I need it later. Because, uh, and I have to make sure that the EQ has a high-pass filter on it. And I do that because you want to take care of any low-frequency noise or low-frequency rumble or extraneous lows that you don't need um, a needed low end from something like a snare drum. Like you don't need the frequencies below about 100 on a snare drum because you just don't. I mean, the, the snare drum doesn't really even produce super, super low frequencies like that. But they are there and they're taking up energy and they're taking up headroom. So you might want to put a high-pass filter on the snare drum and even on the kick drum, a lot of times I'll put a high-pass filter at like 40 hertz because I just don't want the super sub lows. Now, do my mixes sound small? No. We can't even hear it really that low, so you're not going to miss it. I trust, I, you can trust me there. You, you, you will not miss 40 hertz out of your kick drum. You might, might, if it's a hip-hop song, and you might if it's the bass guitar, maybe. But even on the bass guitar, I'll put a high-pass filter at maybe 30 35, sometimes 40, depending on the type of bass and depending on the register that the bass is playing. Um, if it's a five-string bass, I might not put a high-pass filter on it at all. I totally advise, put that as the first plug-in on your chain. Um, I'm going to give you an audio example here in a second of a drum kit, a raw drum kit recorded with uh, you know uh, 12 mics, I think. And I'm just going to show you um, the raw tracks. I mean, you're going to hear a file of the raw tracks. And then you're going to hear a file that has high-pass filters on every track. And they vary in terms of their, you know, their height, of how high they go. Um, I think on the overheads it goes up to about 150. On the kick drum it goes up to maybe 40. Uh, on the snare drum it goes to maybe 120. On the rack tom it might go to 150. And then the floor tom maybe 90. And the uh, room mics, it goes pretty high, actually. Uh, and the room mics, it goes, I think, all the way up to 200. And you'll hear the difference. And maybe listen on headphones or listen on a system that has a pretty good low-end response so you can hear the difference between the tightness of the overall drum sound and how less muddy it might sound. And it, this is all from just a simple high-pass filter. No additional EQ or anything like that's going on. So here's the first clip, and this is raw drums. We did these in a big room. And uh, you'll be able to hear a little bit of reverb from the room on the overheads and the room mics, or two room mics. Um, so make sure you're listening on a good system. 
Here's the first clip, Raw Drums. And now you're going to hear the tracks. Nothing else done to them other than high pass filters and a little tiny bit of balance change because you lose a little low end so you have to kind of readjust a little bit. But nothing else has been added. Alright, so you might say to yourself, well, I can't really hear the difference. And maybe you can't hear the difference, but one that has high pass filters on it is really clearing some low end for the bass to be there. And um, I know it doesn't sound like much, but if you can get on the, some seriously good headphones or some great speakers, you can, you can really hear the difference. Um, and you can really, I really promise you, you can hear the difference once you actually start mixing it, once you start adding compression and what and things like that. It's all the little details that add up. Um, we're going to listen to another example, and these are some guitars. Um, this really is a little more audible, even on a very simple monitoring system. Um, we're going to hear this same clip with the drums, but we're going to add in the bass and the guitars. Um, so you're going to hear the difference. Again, all this stuff is raw file, so you're going to hear the difference between no high-pass filters on, on anything and then high-pass filters on everything. So here is the clip of that mix. And here is that same mix with high-pass filters on all the guitars, the bass, and the drums. And see, other than the high-pass filters, this is all raw. So just for some context, here's the actual mixed version of all this. So again, 
um, it can really make a large difference. And I know this is there's nothing else done to this other than the high pass filters. And once you start compressing and EQing, trust me, you'll start to hear it, and you'll start to hear the difference of using a high pass filter as the first plugin on mostly every channel. And where you can put it um, should be up to you. But um, if you want good starting points, I would just be very cautious. Um, to go much higher than the actual root notes that are being played. So, for example, on bass guitar, I wouldn't go much higher than 50. I wouldn't go much higher than 100 on guitar parts. Now, it depends. If it's a really high guitar part, you may be able to filter out a lot of lows. But if it's uh, chords, you know, you may want to go up to like maybe 80. Um, a low E on a guitar is 83. So, yeah. Um, if it's a kick drum, maybe... 30, 40, 50, um, maybe not even that high. Snare drum, maybe 80 to 100, somewhere in there. Guitars, again, really depend. Vocals, maybe 100, 150. Um, gosh, hi-hats, I pretty much put a high-pass filter all the way up to 1K, 1K on a hi-hat. I mean, just because I don't want anything else but hi-hat sound. Um, overheads can go pretty high, maybe 200 if you don't want any kick in there. Uh, if you just want it mainly for cymbals and snare and toms. Um, sometimes I do that, sometimes not. Sometimes I keep overheads pretty full range. Um, it really depends. You know, you got to experiment. you got to learn with what, what you got. And eventually what you'll find, though, is once you start adding compression and all these things, the compressors will work better, gates will work better, um, all these things will sound better. And another thing is, too, once you start adding reverbs and delays... Uh, you, they will sound so much cleaner because you will not be sending these super low frequencies to them that they will respond to. Um, I also even put high-pass filters on my reverbs and delays and low-pass filters, actually, um, on every single one just because I really want to be able to tame the response down to only the needed frequencies. Um and, you know, it works for me big time, and I, I love that, and uh, it really helps keep a mix clean. I think that's one of my biggest secrets for, you know, not secrets, I'm telling you guys now, for keeping reverbs clean is to put high-pass filters on them fairly high, maybe 100 all the way up to 300 um, on reverbs to keep them um, basically just the the sound of the room, not the sound of, like, the actual drum muddied in there or something like, you know, or on a vocal um like on a vocal, my favorite type of reverb is a plate, and so I'll do like a EMT 250 plate from Altiverb uh, and filter it maybe down to 150 or 200 and then put a low-pass filter on it um, at maybe 4K. I don't even I don't want S's uh, in the reverb. I don't want like bright reverb sound. I want it to sound nice and full and warm. Um, you know, these are things you should experiment. You should experiment with um, putting high-pass filters and low-pass filters on all these things because they're ways to clean up what's there, and there are ways to get rid of the things you don't need. Now, the next thing I really want to talk about before we get into talking about harshness is low mids. Now, again, this is still part of that low frequency thing because low mids can still be difficult for people to hear in uh, compromised monitoring environments and with compromised speakers. Low mids are really where most of the root notes of instruments lie. Um, they are where most of the fundamental notes lie for guitars and, uh, you know, low, I mean, for, for lots of things, the low mids really contain that sort of defining note. Because so much stuff is there, they can get really muddy really quick. 
for me at least, this is my perspective. I would define low mids as about C3 to uh, maybe C5, maybe not even two octaves there, maybe just um, – which C3 is 131 hertz and C5 is 523 hertz, uh, maybe even a little lower. Maybe like 120 and 400 hertz is what I consider to be low mids and that's sort of after the lows, after the what what really is the lows – that hit you in the chest like bass and kick drum um, and even floor tom and that really starts to get into the territory where things really start to have their low low mid-range frequencies things like guitars have a lot of information from 100 to 400 um, kick drums and bass guitars still have plenty of information there um, vocals acoustic guitars have tons piano has tons Everything has tons of information from 2 to 500, 1 to 400, whatever. Let's just say 1 to 500, somewhere in there. That is really where so many people don't spend a lot of their time cutting. They will instead try to boost highs um, on things and that ends up sounding bad um, to compromise for things not being as clear as they would like them. And it's a really serious issue because lots of people will record something and, and you know they'll be like, oh, it needs a little more clarity. And so they'll boost some highs. And um, sure, that works on some things, but on many things, it's really, they're really tricking their ears and they're training themselves to get into a bad habit of not really listening to what's there. Um, in, in many situations, it's not that it doesn't have enough highs. Um, the recording gear that we have these days have, has plenty of highs. Um, it's bright, it's bright gear, it's very clear gear. What's not clear is rooms, and what's not clear is a lot of instruments and amps. And what's not clear uh, is a lot of microphones that people get that are on the low spectrum. And when things are not clear, that usually means that they don't have a clear defined low end, not that they have an unclear top end. So what I'm going to challenge you to do is rather than like on a kick drum, for example, if it sounds a little boomy or a little boxy, or it seems to be getting in the way of the bass, and you're trying to make the kick and the bass work together, rather than trying to add some more clickiness to the kick, or add some more, you know, this and that, you might try taking out some frequencies in sort of maybe the 200 to 500 range, um, taking out some frequencies. I mean, honestly, see how much you can take out before you don't like the sound of it. You can actually get rid of quite a bit of, uh, of room there to let the bass kind of fill up that gap. And in the bass, a lot of times I find that somewhere between 100 and 200 hertz um, is really the intelligibility on cheap speakers, low-grade speakers. So like a MacBook or uh, cheap computer speakers or something like that. Um, things between 100 and 200, 250, that's really where a lot of the clarity comes in on those speakers because they can't produce below 100. So lots of people will spend the, this, you know, these amounts of time working on the kick and the bass down in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And while that's important um, for big systems, most systems that people listen to today um, don't really have a great response down below 80. And so, you know, you can get away with uh, putting a little less low end on there um, and making it a tighter low end rather than this big, huge low end. 
um, if you want to. And you really need to massage the kick and the bass together in the 100 to 200 range, even as high as 100 to 300, um, which I usually find I end up taking out. Uh, I usually leave the kick drum in, in the around the uh, 120 and below. I keep my kick drums sort of centered around the 70 to 90 hertz region for their main uh, for their main fundamental. And then um, I, I make sure and have some information somewhere around the hundreds and then maybe even somewhere around the 200s, but then cut out some at 300 and cut out some below 70. Um, that way the bass can really fill up the low lows and the bass can also fill up the 120 to 200 region. And also um, I, I put a lot of mid-range on my bass um, so that it'll really be heard. Um, in small speakers. Um, that, that stuff is all really important and low mids are really uh, the next key. After you can get the high pass filter thing down on lows, low mids are really your next part to tackle. Um, you need to really take a look at does something have too much low end or low mids rather than does it have not enough high end because I guarantee you about 90% of the time it has too much low end and too much low mids. Um, so be very cautious about what you boost on the highs. I can guarantee you your mixes will sound better if you cut only. Um, so you start learning to train your ear to cut the bad stuff rather than boost the good stuff because that's really what you need to do. You really need to take out what's bad rather than add what's good because when you add something that's good, that doesn't mean it gets rid of the bad stuff. It just sort of adds more good to like, you know, put a little bit of sugar and whipped cream on top of your meatloaf doesn't always work uh, it's not you know and instead what you really want to do is take out the stuff that you don't want rather than add some pretty stuff so um, that's the biggest thing I have for you with low mids I'm just gonna give you a quick demo here I didn't remix the drums but basically all I did was um, I'm gonna play the raw drum clip that I did earlier in the show and then I just EQ'd the drum bus very carefully in the low mids from 100 to 500 and just tightened it up a bit and you'll hear the difference that it makes Now, next thing we're going to talk about is harshness, and I consider the upper mid-range frequencies to be, you know, somewhere in the 2 to 6K range. Um, I, I think that's really where about the upper mid-range lies, and then above 6, you know, you have some, like, lower highs, but upper mids, whatever, 6 to 7, 6, 7, 8K, but then you have highs above 8. Um, so the upper mid frequencies, when I just think about upper mids, I think about, uh, you know, about 2 to 6K, and this is where a lot of harshness lies. And uh, harshness comes from a lot of things. I think the main thing it comes from is poor technique and cheap instruments um, and cheap gear. And I'll give you an illustration here. A lot of times guitar players, when they're on stage, their guitar sounds very harsh to me. And it hurts my ears. I mean, it literally hurts my ears to listen to them play. And people will bring in guitars and they say, this is my guitar amp sound, this is the sound. And it just hurts. Why is that? Well, I think the biggest reason is because let's say a guitar player has a 212 combo. And they set it on the ground. And they stand up and they play guitar about 5, 10 feet away. 
they're really not getting the sound of the guitar amp, at least where the mic is going to be. The mic is going to be an inch away from the speaker. They're just getting the sound of their guitar amp in the room. And so what they're really trying to do is create that effect to them, to their ear. They're trying to create the sound of a direct sound like you put a mic on it. Um, very close, very crisp, like recorded. They're trying to make it sound like their favorite records. We, we all are. And so because you're standing so far away and because your head is above, it's easily four feet above if the amp's only two feet tall. I mean, maybe not even that, maybe a foot tall, um, you know, in terms of where the speakers are. Uh, and you're six feet tall, and I mean, your head is five feet above and ten feet away, and so you're really only getting this off-axis sound. You're not actually getting the sound of the amp, and so, you know, it's very hard for me to tell this to some guitar players, but you don't know a lot of guitar players, you know, I tell them, you don't really realize how bright your amp is, because I'll put a mic on it, and they'll be like, that sounds really harsh. I'm like, that's actually, I mean, that's how your amp sounds to me because I'm used to hearing it. I mean, I put my face down there and I listen to it and I don't recommend doing that for very long periods of time because it will drive you insane. But I challenge you at least one time, you know, find the tone that you think is great and then put your head down there by your speaker and play and really listen to how harsh it is. And I can guarantee you it's probably a little brighter than you had wanted. Um, and then generally that's because... Uh, you know, a lot of people will tune their guitar amps by standing in front of them, for the studio at least. Um, and that's not a good thing because really, I feel like guitarists should tune their guitar amps in terms of their tone controls based on whoever's listening. So if you're in the audience, the guitar player should stand out in the audience, you know, when during sound check and listen to how it sounds 20 feet away. Then he might realize, oh wow, the stage is six feet tall and my amp is at ear level now. Um, and now it's too harsh. Or people should stand in the control room with the mic on the guitar amp, and then they should play, and they say, oh, it sounds too bright. Don't move the mic yet. Try it on the amp first. Adjust the gain. Adjust the treble on the pedals. Change to a different pickup. Adjust the amp. Maybe use a different amp. And if that all doesn't help, then move the mic. Always more important to get it right at the source. Another situation where there's a lot of harshness is acoustic guitars. First of all, I think a lot of acoustic guitar players play too hard, um, and they play with brand new strings. And, you know, brand new strings can be great, but sometimes they can be terrible for the studio. And they'll play too hard, and they'll play way down by the bridge, and you don't get any balance out of that. And a lot of these newer guitars, like Taylor's and Takamini's, they don't sound balanced to me. They sound very bright. They sound very crisp, and they don't sound balanced. They don't sound like they have a good balanced signal from lows to highs. Um, I want a guitar that has a nice, silky, sort of smooth bottom end, a very warm-sounding mid-range, something that's very defined, and not very, not very edgy-sounding. I don't want something to sound edgy. And then a nice, smooth top. I don't want it to sound super uh, clicky or crisp or you know, like sharp. Um, I want my acoustic guitar to sound like a guitar, you know, very smooth and, and normal sounding to me, at least. Um, some people like that really bright acoustic guitar sound, and in some tracks, it actually really works. Be very cautious of these things when you're miking them up. Be very cautious of these things when you're listening to them. You really need to train your ear to listen for these things like harshness and muddiness in the low mids and you know, too much low end, because that way, the more you train yourself to hear these things, the more you train yourself and train your ear 
to hear harshness where you need to take it out, like I said, rather than add, you know, if something's harsh, you don't need to add low end. Um, but that's just as arbitrary as adding bright, adding top end when something's too dark or something's too muddy. So um, when something's harsh, you need to recognize that's harsh, not that doesn't have enough low end. So a good example also is the vocals, human voice. Um, singers like, for example, uh, a type like uh, C- Steven Tyler from Aerosmith. Lots of people know his voice. Um, he has sort of an iconic voice, but one of his things is that he's got this real edgy, intense voice. It's very bright and present. Now, if you were working with a singer like that, for example, sometimes you're turning down the, the voice because it's too present in the mix, but then it sounds small and it doesn't compete with the band. Then you try to EQ it a little bit and then that doesn't work. And then you push it back up, but then it's too loud. Well, again, this whole game about harshness is really a matter of training your ear to hear, again, what is there that should not be there. So when you're listening to the voice, a lot of times what can fix this problem in a lot of voices um, is to take out just a touch of frequencies in the 2 to 6K range that are maybe potentially nasally or harsh or strident or something a little bit edgy on the vocals. So... Uh, Again, what you want to do is do like you do on other EQing jobs where you'll boost the frequency band a little bit and then maybe sweep it around um, to see a point. Um, Just adjust the frequencies from maybe 2 to 8K and just sweep it around for the point when it really sounds bad. Then cut it. And I just suggest cutting about 1 to 3 decibels here. Not a lot, just enough to kind of soften up the edge on the vocal. And what you'll find is the reason the voice sounds small when you turn it down is that the voice actually has a good low end on it. And when you add, when you have something that's too bright, it's sounding too present. It's sounding too loud. Presence equals loudness. So um, if you turn down the presence, it sounds a little less bright, but the low end is still there. So it still sounds big. It just doesn't sound as loud. So I want you to just process all this for a second. Let's recap here. So if you have a voice, it seems like you're always trying to fight whether or not it needs to fit in the mix. A lot of times what that means is that it's too bright. So you EQ out some of that brightness. The low end stays intact. It still sounds big and you're good to go. So another place that harshness can come from is extraneous high frequencies. Um, This is in things like bass guitar and... uh, sometimes toms, sometimes room mics, and sometimes backing vocals even. What I mean by this is harshness in things that do not need a ton of high end. In a lot of room mics, you don't need tons and tons and tons of cymbal. And in a lot of bass guitar, you don't need all this high frequency stuff, you know, that's from the string noise or from the bass pickups or from, you know, a pick or something like that. You don't need that. You don't need that. So you can put a low pass filter on this stuff and bring it, you know, to maybe 8K or 6K on the bass. Um, And then on a room mic, you might, who knows, you might be able to bring it really low on a room mic to just bring out some of that cymbal so that the real cymbal sound that you're getting is from, you know, the overheads. Uh, And sometimes it's not the case. These are just suggestions. These are things that I go through. Um, Another place that this happens a lot, like we talked about, is guitars, where the guitars are too harsh. And a lot of times on guitar amps, there's nothing really above, you know, 8 or 10K that you really need. Um, unless you're going for that super airy, like, 
the edge clean sound. You can take out some of that stuff to leave more room for cymbals, to leave more room for the vocals, and uh, it really helps clean it up. Again, you're removing the parts that you don't like, not adding the parts that you do like. And you need to train your ear to learn what is bad in a sound and what, what is not working for, for your benefit in the mix. Um, another thing is that with harshness, harshness is a big reason why a lot of things don't fit together because everything – you can listen to a snare drum or you can listen to a, a set of guitars. Or you can listen to all this stuff and it sounds great. It sounds huge. It sounds present. It's got good low end, good high end. But in a mix, the vocals don't fit. So what I find is that a lot of times it's an element of everything else is too present, not the vocal is not present enough. Let me rephrase that. It's not the job of the vocal to sit in the mix. People think this a lot. Oh, my vocals don't sit in the mix. It's not the job of the vocal to sit in the mix. It is the job of the track to let the vocal sit. So um, you will EQ out some of the brightness on maybe the guitars, which seem to compete with the vocals a lot, and maybe even a little bit on the drums. Uh, again, somewhere in the 1 to 5K region is where most of the voice intelligibility of the human voice lies. And so... Um, you can carve out just a little spot there, just a couple of decibels, or as much as you need, really, um, for the vocals to sit there. That way you can turn them down. That's what you mean by sit. Um, when people say sit in the mix, it means literally turn them down to the perfect level to where they are. Every word is heard. You can sing along with it because you can hear every single word, but they're not killing you uh, with volume, you know, 10 times louder than the rest of the band because that sounds awkward. Um, again, another example of harshness on a vocal is uh, S's from siblings, like that. That's why we use fancy little plugins called DSers. That can really help because our ears, our ears pick up sound over time. Our ears hear things as an average. So if there's a lot of S's in someone's speech, in general, that voice will sound brighter. So if I'm talking like this and I have a lot of S's in my voice, saying things that contain a lot of S's and talking about plugins and DSers, sounds like there's a lot of brightness there. But if I'm talking about plugins that happen to have EQ or compression, it doesn't sound like my voice is as harsh because your ears average things together. They take how many S's are being said together they take how much harshness of something is being is being accumulated over time like the crack of a snare drum over time and it says man that is bright because of the quantity of brightness however if you use a deesser or you use a little bit of eq to take some of that out even just a little bit over time our ears will in in, in general associate that with being less harsh um, it's not just about you know, the actual sound of the voice is necessarily harsh. Sometimes it's the S's. Sometimes it's the the S quality. Um, a lot of times on a drum kit, this is cymbals. A drum kit will sound great, but when the cymbals come in, they sound terrible. Um, and honestly, the most, the key factor is in that, the two key factors in, in terrible sounding cymbals, which in my opinion can really ruin a drum track, are novice drummers that hit the cymbals way too hard, especially in the studio, they hit the cymbals way too hard, and also cheap cymbals that just don't sound good, and they're harsh to the ear. So those those things are things to consider as the chorus comes in, and then the cymbals hit, and then you know it sounds harsh, and the whole mix falls apart, and then you really start listening to it, and it's the cymbals. 
you can use a de-esser on the on the overheads. I've done it before. So and for those super high frequencies, you know, above 6K, to just take out a little bit of that harshness whenever the cymbals start coming in. Now you do compromise a little bit of the clarity on the snare drum, but you can make up for that with the snare drum mic. So the last thing I want to talk about is balance, and this is also a big factor in making things muddy. A lot of times people really don't think about the balances of everything together um, because people work in solo too much, um, they have a compromised monitoring environment, they're listening on headphones, they're, you know, all these things can really be hurtful sometimes to getting good balances. And I think the best way to get a good balance is to get great, great monitors, to learn them, and uh, to be in a good controlled environment, a controlled studio that has uh, nice acoustic treatment in the room, and also, uh, ironically enough, to get a pair of terrible speakers. And those those elements there can allow you to really hit all the grounds. You have an accurate pair of speakers that you trust and know. Then you have a terrible pair of speakers like a MacBook speakers or uh, you know cheapo computer speakers from Walmart that will give you a real world reference. And if your mix can still sound good on those, then it probably still sounds good. Balance is a big part of mixing and a big part of music in general. And it really has to do with a couple of main items, and that is panning balance, left to right, volume balance, EQ balance, of course, which we've already talked about, and also depth balance, how far back in a mix something is. With all of these things, you're already learning how to do them because you're knowing how to mix. You're learning how to mix, and you're getting better every day. I trust that you are, and I hope that you're learning things from me, and I hope that you're reading and learning and asking questions. So balance is a daily part of what we do. We learn more about balance every day. However, there are ways that you can really listen to balance of balances of things objectively and get off to the right foot. So let's say you've started your mix, and the first thing, in my opinion, that you should do in a mix is balance. And I'm sort of working in reverse here on the on the show, but uh, I think you should balance first, you know, which includes volumes and pans, and then grouping. And then you should also then, after the balance, put on the high pass filters and and take out the bad stuff. That's my big thing today. Take out the bad stuff first before you compress it, before you put reverb on it, before you EQ it anymore. Take out what's bad. So take out the unneeded lows that you don't need. Take out the unneeded boxy low mids or the muddy low mids. Um, you know, be careful on drums and acoustic guitars and vocals because that happens all the time on those. Anything that you're using mics, you know, not like on a guitar amp, you're putting a mic like really close, but there still can be, you know, boxy low mids or something. Um, and then removing any harshness from something. Then do your compression. Then do any other things that you need to do. And then if you still need EQ, you can add some icing to the cake. But remember, the first EQ plugin you use, put it first on the track before compression. Take out what's bad. Take out what you don't need. So, balance. I suggest, highly, highly suggest starting a mix by double checking everything, giving yourself a clean environment to work in. Make sure every track is labeled. Um, if you can, make sure the tracks are colored. I think that really helps a lot of people. Um, things on Nuendo, things on Cubase, things on Pro Tools, you can color the actual channel strip in the mixer. I think that really helps. It makes it more intuitive. Um, you need to create these sorts of uh, setups where you're, you're very comfortable and you can just look over. Like I always, I always have the, the same colors for every type of channel that I work on. 
Um, drums are always gray. Bass is always purple. Vocals are always blue for male singers and pink for female singers. Acoustic guitars are always yellow. Organ is always brown. Piano is always red. You know, just these little things like that. And uh, my effects are always orange. I just, I get used to it and I see it. So I don't have to like, I don't have to complicate the mix process by searching for a track by words. I, I just look over, there's my bass. And I don't have to complicate it by by hurting my brain and keeping me out of the flow. So make sure your tracks are labeled well. Make sure you add any notes that you want to really make your environment good. And then start balancing things. Um, really pay careful attention to how everything balances together. So don't work in solo too much. Um, I usually start by soloing up all the drums and putting them on a group um, and listening to the drums as a whole. And I start with my overheads. I add in my kick. I add in my snare. And I just slowly start adding. I'm checking my phase. I'm doing panning. Um, I slowly start adding mics one at a time. And uh, and then I, I'm just grouping them. And then I'm panning things. I don't do any EQs here. And then I'll, I'll slowly add the mix as it goes. And uh, so I'll add in the bass. I'll add in the bass DI. And then I'll add in the amp. Because I usually record both. Then I'll add in the main rhythm guitar or main rhythm element or whatever, whether that's piano or guitar. Then I'll add in, you know, the other guitars, the doubles. Then I'll add in all these things and I'll slowly add and I'll just, as soon as something comes in, I'll mix it to that point. It's very intimidating to get a mix and throw everything up and then just start frantically pulling everything around trying to get it all to fit. It's much easier to balance things in sections. So balance all the drums first. Don't EQ them, just balance them. Add in the bass, add in the main rhythm, add in the, you know, guitars and slowly work it up and then eventually add in the vocal. And what you'll find is that's a quick, quick way to start getting your whole mix ready. Now you might say, well, what if I've already started my mix? I started mixing from, the, from day one, from the day I started recording, I started mixing it. As I've said in other shows, I highly suggest saving that mix and calling it the rough mix and then coming back to it if you need to. I would suggest wiping the slate clean and starting from a completely fresh mix. That way you have completely clean perspective. And because of the beauty of digital, you still have your rough mix if you need it. Um, if you need to add parts or whatever. But wipe the slate clean, start over mixing from scratch, and I can almost guarantee you your mix will sound better because you'll have a fresh perspective and you'll take off all the unneeded stuff that you didn't need. Um, and then be able to reference to the old one if you want. So balance as far as that goes is really important. And we've already talked about balance in terms of panning. Go reference the LCR show that we talked about. Um, go, to, go reference that and you can listen to panning in there. And also reference the show about getting depth in the mix and uh, just start to understand how all these things really interplay together and how important balance is not just volume. Um, balance is also even about automation throughout the mix, you know, volume automating the different tracks in the different sections and volume automating all these things to make sure things are all heard and you don't just keep chasing your tail when you're sitting there and, you know, you're mixing like a bridge and then the verse happens and it sounds terrible, but then the bridge sounds great. Um, I can almost guarantee you that that's a... Uh, that's a product of musicians not really understanding the context of the song and they didn't play it how they should have or you didn't record it how you should have um, with the right tone or whatever. 
So you can fix a lot of that stuff with automation. So if something's a little too loud in the verse now, you can just bring down the volume a little bit in the verse. And you don't have to really compromise the whole mix and you don't have to chase your tail for an hour. So recognize that balance is super important. Okay, so I hope this show has given you some things to think about in terms of getting the most out of your mix from the get-go, getting the most out of your mix from just the, the, the very single point that you open it up. You know, you balance it. You start filtering out the lows that you don't need. You start um, listening to what's bad and taking it out. Don't listen to what's good yet. You can you can make that pretty later, but listen to what's too much, and really start to understand the context of each sound, because something like a, an acoustic guitar is a great example. It has tons of lows and tons of highs, and and in a full mix, sometimes you don't need that at all. You don't need all those lows. The big key here is. The more instruments are in a mix, the smaller each one has to be. Remember that. It's really important. If there's only one instrument in the mix, if the mix is acoustic guitar, it can be big. It can take up the whole frequency spectrum. If the mix is acoustic guitar and vocals, the acoustic guitar might have to be just a tiny bit smaller than the vocal. If it's acoustic guitar, bass, drums, piano, B3, vocals, violin, electric guitar, all this stuff, Everything is going to have to make room for the, everything else. Um, it just will. That's just how it works. So good luck, guys. Again, if you have any questions, email me, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, special thanks to all the guys that have left amazingly, amazingly wonderful reviews on iTunes for the podcast. I appreciate you guys so much. And another thing I want to start is uh, if you have a question that you want me to talk about in length, um, and you know, I say this, I hope I can get to everyone, um, but email it to me and, uh, in, in the form of an audio recording. So record your voice and send it to me in MP3 recording lounge podcast at gmail.com a short, you know, 30 seconds, whatever of you asking a question. Um, just tell me your name and where you're from and I will try to put it on the show so that other people can benefit from what you know, what might have been just a private Gmail conversation between me and you, uh, answering your question. What also can help benefit other people that want to know maybe the same question that you have. So uh, again, email me there. Check out the Facebook Recording Lounge, um, and check out the blog. And uh, I'll see you guys next time.